Uh, I also want to thank those who came yesterday. We had a workday over at Choices, which uh, went really, really well. We had a great turnout. We had enough folks that uh, within a couple of hours, uh, everything was complete that we needed to do. The building had been cleaned from top to bottom. Everything was folded, packed, and prepared for the, uh, the big run and walk that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And um, I think we need to, to know and to feel in a sense as we support that ministry and make it successful that their ministry is to families and to women in crisis and ultimately to their children and to the unborn. And, uh, and it's a profound ministry and uh, it's a privilege to be a part and to make it strong. Thank you for coming and helping. In a couple of, well, four weeks from now, and you'll start to see more and more information about that, we have another community work day and we'll have uh, three, four, five opportunities to, to get engaged and to serve in our community and uh, would encourage you to be thinking about that and planning for that on Saturday, April the 11th. Also, if you're a man, you haven't signed up for the men's retreat, sign up today. Uh, one of the strongest sign-ups we've had in some time, and I'm really excited about the topic and the speaker, and I would encourage you to think about coming with us. This morning, we are looking at the uh, new temple. Last week, we talked about the new heart as we are in First uh, Peter chapter 1 and 2, working our way through, and we have a series here of, of new things. Last week was a new heart. This week, we're talking about the new temple, and a couple of weeks from now, after uh, our speaker next week, we will talk about the new Israel. A lot of new things, and that's what Jesus does. He makes all things new, and in Christ, they are made new. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Hear then the word of God. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and so he is a stone of stumbling, and he is a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this day into your presence. You say where two and three are gathered, there you are among us. And we have gathered two and three hundred together in your name, longing to know your presence, longing for you to speak to us and to work in our lives. And so as we sit now at your feet, as we listen now to your word, we long for it to be you who speaks into our lives with power that we might not only gather information, but that we might experience the transformation that is ours by your word, by your spirit, and in Christ, in whose name we pray and ask. Amen. The key Old Testament, there is a key Old Testament image in the temple. There are a lot of things that happen in the history of Israel that come and stand before us as types and pictures. The Exodus is a picture of our deliverance in Christ. The temple stands as one of those images central to the life of Old Testament Israel, central to the life of God's people. And and Old Testament Israel's life revolved around the temple. It was in Jerusalem. First it was a tabernacle, and it moved around as they did, and then it was in a tent. Ultimately, it's centered in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
and and still the life of Israel revolved around it. There was a priesthood who served there day and night, 24-7-365, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And at the high points of the year and the festivals and times of worship, Israel gathered by the tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands to the city of Jerusalem were just thronged with worshipers as they gathered to the temple. It was the place, the actual location of God's presence with his people. We know whether it was the tabernacle as it traveled or the temple when it built at the very heart of this structure was the Holy of Holies, separated by a great veil which nobody entered into. And there the Ark of the Covenant abided with the uh, cherubim on top. It was seen as the throne of God and the Shekinah glory descends on it in the Old Testament. And there is God with his people. And there the priests served. There they made their sacrifices. And now with Jesus and with Paul, Peter says, New Testament Christians are that temple. It's an amazing thing to say. It's an interesting thing to say. It's something that you're going to have to go home and think about a little bit when we're done here today. That you are that temple. That temple that was the very locus and presence of God with his people in the Old Testament where all the worship took place and, and where all the sacrifices were made and the priests served all that time. And we, you, are that temple. No more blood of bulls and goats. No more shadows. In the New Testament, we're told it is an era of spirit and in truth. We will worship this God who is a spirit in spirit and in truth. The kingdom has come. David's king has come. He is reigning on his throne. The temple is being rebuilt and it's being rebuilt right now. Right here. Even this morning. In our midst. The New Testament writers labor to help us to see that all these Old Testament promises and types are fulfilled not sometime in the future, not some future kingdom that we're waiting for. They labor for us to see the amazing, spiritual, powerful, real, literal, in the sense that it is in Christ, and all the promises are, yes, in Christ. And the kingdom is in our midst, and it is now in Christ. And Jesus promised, if you remember, as he is walking through Jerusalem at one of those great high feasts and everybody had gathered and he says to the group that's around him, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. This was one of the things that got him crucified. It was one of the things that they argued with him about. They thought he might be threatening to tear down the temple and then he's saying these crazy things about rebuilding it in three days. Don't you understand that, you know, that, that this rebuilt temple took centuries You know, over the years, it's been added onto and refurbished and built. And Jesus' passage tells us he was talking about the resurrection. You tear down this temple, and ultimately then he localizes the temple in himself. The temple is just a picture. It's just a shadow. It's just something that's coming. And Jesus, as he stands there, is the one who has been coming. And as he he has come and stands there, says, and if you tear down this temple... And it will be torn down. 70 years hence, at that point it's 30, about 40 years from then, 70 AD, it is utterly destroyed. And to this day, it has not been rebuilt. And Jesus says, when you tear it down, don't worry. I'll rebuild it in three days in myself. John four twenty one. you remember Jesus is with the woman at the well and they're having this conversation about worship. First, they're talking about her 
personal life, and she gets a little... So they start talking about worship. She, she changes the conversation, and she talks about where we should be worshiping because Jerusalem is the center of Israel's worship, but she is... Uh, you know, not part of uh, Judah at that point. And so they worship in the northern kingdom of Israel, the Samaritans. And so Jesus says this to her, believe me, woman, hear me, right? Believe me, understand this. I'm telling you, this is in your bulletin, first point, John 4, 21. He says, believe me, woman, understand this. The hour is coming, right? Because who stands before you? At some point he says, I am that one that you're looking for. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now that is a world-shaking statement to first century Judaism. The day is coming and it's not far off because I'm here and he knows 40 years from now it's going to be torn down and he tells her, the day is coming. You won't worship here in Samaria or in Jerusalem. No more temple. That's what that statement means. You're not going to worship here or in Jerusalem. He's saying no more temple. And then he says that amazing statement that that God is a spirit. The Father is a spirit. and And he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Shadows are passing away. Spirit and truth arrive in Christ in a fullness that the world had not known. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, there in your bulletin also, Paul says, do you not know? Have you not understood the Scriptures? Has it not become clear to you yet in the things that Jesus has said and the Old Testament has prophesied? Do you not know? You are God's temple, people of God. You are God's temple. And God's Spirit, the Spirit, that the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of His Spirit, not in the form of a dove, but in the form of a, of a glory that descended on Solomon's temple and abided in the Holy of Holies so that all of Israel's worship centered around that location of God's Spirit in the temple in Israel. And he says, don't you know now you are the temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Ever again, you will worship him in spirit and in truth. He has decentralized worship in that respect. Don't you get it? The geography is changing. It's no longer a physical temple. God's spirit dwells in you. And that word you there in the the Greek is more obvious that it's plural. Not necessarily you, any individual, but, but you. He writes to the church. You are that temple. You are that temple. So in verse 4, Peter writes and he says, as you come to Jesus, he is a living stone. He's been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and he is precious. He is a living stone, this Jesus. So he's a stone. He's, 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 He's a building block so to speak, right? He's a, he's a stone and he's a living stone and he's not just a living stone in that he's not a piece of marble or something, but he's a living stone in that he is the firstborn from among the dead. He's a living stone because he is risen from the dead on the other side of death. He lives and he will never die again. Behold, he was dead and now he is alive forevermore. So he stands as this living stone full of the life of God. Rejected by men, but chosen by God. Despite his rejection and his crucifixion, it doesn't undo the choosing. And God establishes him as the foundation. 
chosen by God, and we read back in verse 20 of chapter 1, right? He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. He was made manifest in these times for your sake. He is chosen before the foundation of the world by God, though rejected by man. And it says he is precious, highly honored. And we know this is how the Father feels about him. It was more than once on the Mount of Transfiguration, on the day of his baptism, God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is precious to me. And so this precious and chosen living stone. But it's not any stone, is it? In verse 6, he goes on and says, for it stands written in Scripture, and he goes to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 28, and he quotes prophecy about this one who is coming, and he says, behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Right? Peter grabs that language, Jesus is this stone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the cornerstone that is chosen and precious and laid in Zion is not a dead block of marble. It's someone you believe in and are saved and are not put to shame. And so Jesus isn't just any stone, he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is that first stone. I mean, you've all heard that before. It's the first stone you put in place when you're building a building, particularly in ancient times, and you didn't have a laser level, and you didn't have some of that kind of stuff going on, you had to use other kinds of tech. And so the, the cornerstone was one that had to be in the corner, and it, it was precious because it's labor-intensive. The stone had to be perfect. It had to be the exact height you wanted things to be. The, the sides had to be true and straight and, and level, you know, because every other stone in that building is going to be laid up against it, and then the one that's laid up against that one will be laid up against that one. If the cornerstone is off, the whole thing is off. The cornerstone chosen and precious and laid in place becomes that against which and upon which every other stone is rested. Either a cross touching it or going up and out, every stone touches that first stone. The whole building. Jesus is the cornerstone on which the church is built. Now I'm going to take a moment, I want to do this graciously, because you know that we don't, every denomination out there differs a little bit from the others. That's why they're denominations. And we all acknowledge it. They disagree with us, we disagree with them. I'm going to disagree for a moment and tell you one of the things, because I think this is a central passage in an understanding of an issue that abides out there. One of them is this, that in Catholic theology, in ecclesiology, in their understanding then of church government. When I say ecclesiology, that is the way the church is structured. You know, they're structured top down from, from the Pope. And the way their ecclesiology and the way their church government is understood, it is based on what they call Petrine theory. Petrine simply is meaning having to do with Peter. Petrine theater, th- theory, Peter theory. It's in your bulletin under the first point, Matthew 16. There's that famous passage where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. Right, He's wondering, who does everybody say that I am? And then finally, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not showed this to you, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has shown this to you. This is not, you know, somebody didn't tell this to you. You didn't just arrive on it because you're a smart guy. God revealed to you the truth of what you just said. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. Then he goes on and he says this, I tell you, you are Peter. And he gives him a new name, Peter, which means rock. I name you rock. 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. On this rock I'm going to build my church. Now there are two ways that passage has been understood, that statement. Because he called Peter a rock, and then he says, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And the way the Catholic Church understands that passage is to say, Peter is the rock. And and it is on Peter that, that he's going to build his church. And so Peter is the first pope. And everyone who, every person in succession from Peter is the vicar of Christ and is the pope of the church because on this church, on Peter and all of his successors, Christ is going to build his church. And their whole then structure of their church from the pope down is built on this side that Peter is the rock, the vicar of Christ and the pope. Protestants have understood it differently. And we have said Peter is not the rock. And that's a misunderstanding of this passage. And I know that Jesus calls Peter the rock, and then he says, on the rock, I'm going to build this foundation. But Protestants have always understood it to be not Peter as a person and as, and, as, and as an exalted leader that becomes a leader of the church through the ages, but Peter in his confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, it is the gospel that has built the church through the ages. That is that confession, Peter being the first one to speak. And he says on this foundation, the foundation of the confession of Jesus as the Christ, God himself come to save. On this will the church be built. And this is one of the reasons why I say this passage is important. Because if you were to say, Peter, how did you understand what Jesus said that day? What did you understand when when you heard Jesus say, on this rock I will build my church? What did you hear? I believe this passage says this is what Jesus heard. I mean, Peter heard from Jesus. This is Peter's interpretation of what Jesus meant by on this rock. And Peter says this, Jesus is the rock on which God will build his church. Jesus is the cornerstone, living and precious and chosen by God from before the foundations of the world to build his church on this the. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation. This confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe to create new living stones to be built together with this one. And it on no other foundation than Christ that the church is built. And so with Paul and with Peter and Jesus, they declare, Jesus is the cornerstone and foundation. And you are that temple. You, church of Christ, are that temple. We're the temple because we're united to Christ. We're connected to the cornerstone. We share his life. And because, you know, and and the first point there, I said high cornerstone. I know that's an oxymoron, right? Because cornerstone, by definition, is, is the foundation, right? It's in the corner of the base of the building. But high, take metaphorically, the high cornerstone is the exalted, you know, precious and chosen stone. It is, it is high because I needed highs to go all the way through, right? I need a high cornerstone, high privileges, and a high calling, right? So that it becomes, so it works. Because we're connected to the high cornerstone, we have high privileges. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus is the living stone. We come to this living stone. He's the firstborn from the dead. In verse 5, he goes on and he says, and you yourselves are living stones. Right? High privileges. Right? Connected to the living stone, he says, and you are living stones. 
connected with Him, with Him in Romans 6.4. It says just, it's there in your bulletin under the second point, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, just as Christ is a living stone raised by the Father, precious and chosen by Him, He says we too can walk in newness of life. We too are living stones brought back from the dead, raised from the dead spiritually. Last week we talked about the new heart, right? To be born again, to have our hearts purified. Another image that the scripture uses is raised from the dead, spiritually raised. When we were dead, we were made alive in Christ, raised from the dead. So we too are living stones. We live with Him. He promises those who put their faith in Him eternal life. You will live and you will have life abundant. You will live because he lives. Jesus is chosen, we're told, not only a living stone, but he is chosen and precious. And we've talked about this idea of being chosen. When Paul, Peter opened this letter, he wrote it to chosen people, right? To those who are elect exiles. And we said that word elect there is the exact same word. It's translated chosen right here. It's the same word. Elect and chosen are just two different English words that say the same thing. To choose and to elect. And so he writes to God's chosen people from the very beginning that Jesus is the chosen and precious one, but so are we. That in Christ we have high privileges, being connected to the chosen and precious one. In fact, the word precious there in the Greek, it's two little words, en time. Time means honor. And to en time is to highly honor or to find precious. In verse 7, you'll see that he says, So the honor is for you who believe. Timé, the honor is for you. The, uh, he is chosen and highly honored. And then he says, You are chosen and honored. Not just forgiven. But we stand in a place of blessing and honor. It is sometimes hard even to grasp and to believe what it means that as Christ is precious and honored to the Father, as the Son of the living God is precious and honored by Him, that you and I, who are joined to that cornerstone, are as precious and as honored for the sake of the Son as He is. He calls us His children, accepted, loved, and precious to Him. He also says, not only are we living stones, chosen and precious, but we're being built into a spiritual house that we are, we are being made the temple. We are being made the center and locus of His presence that in the Old Testament was a physical building. And now we have churches like this all over the world. We have them all over Chattanooga. And you know what? You can burn it down, knock it down, take it away, and we'll meet in the field. And when you gather together, you're like living stones built together, and you've created the temple wherever you get together. And worship happens. And it's not a building anymore. It's not a physical building and never will be. On that day, we won't even need the sun because he will be our light and he is in our presence. He says the time of that temple is done and the time of this temple has come. And it is not located in one little part of the world or one city or one building, but it's everywhere. The kingdom of God is within you. And you are that temple and he's building us together, he says, and not with physical stones, but we're living stones. And the Spirit dwells in us and in our gathering. 
And we worship in spirit and in truth. And so the temple is living in organic and spiritual. And not only then are we living stones and chosen and precious in this, and the new temple in the presence of where God is centered, his worship and his spirit, but we're, he says we're a holy priesthood. Right? We're walking our way through verse 5 in a holy priesthood. Not only the temple, but you're the priests in the temple. Under the great high priest. The second point in your bulletin we read from Hebrews chapter 6. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our, on our behalf and he has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's gone on before and he has become the high priest. He is the king, he is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the high priest. And underneath him we are a kingdom, he says, of priests. And so Jesus has taken a place as the high priest and he says, but he has now a kingdom as you are the temple and his spirit lives here. He says, you're also a kingdom of priests. Right, you're... What did priests do? They served God in, the, in his worship. And he says, this is who you are. This is what you do. We are the priesthood. You know, it was death for Gentiles to enter the temple. And one time they dragged Paul out and they were going to stone him because they thought that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. Right? Gentiles didn't get to go. There was a court of the Gentiles that was outside the temple. And that's one of the reasons Jesus was so angry that it became a place of den of thieves. I don't think it was just that it became a place of buying and selling uh, and usury in that sense. But it was in the court of the Gentiles. The mission of Old Testament Israel was to be a light to the nations. And the very court that they provided for them to gather in had become the marketplace as if you're not welcome here. It was the only place they could go because they're not allowed in the sanctuary. They're not allowed in the temple. They're not allowed anywhere else. And they turned the house of prayer for all nations. And you took one of the places for the nations, which was the whole point of your existence, blessed to be a blessing. And you took it away from them. Gentiles had no place. They were alienated. Under pain of death. They stood outside Israel, they stood outside the blessings, which is why Ephesians 2, there in your bulletin under the second point. You were at that time separated from Christ, you Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're not Israelites, you're strangers to the covenant, to the promise. You were not part of the covenant. You had out there then, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world because you were outside of Israel. It's one of those most profound but now statements in the Bible, but now things are different. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You not only get to go to the court of the Gentiles outside, right? You not only get to come into the sanctuary, into the temple where where the Israelites worshipped, you not only get to go there, you get to go into where the priests actually offered sacrifices and did their work because now you Gentiles who were once far off by the blood of Jesus can now come into the very temple of God. Not only so, but the veil that separated the outer sanctuary from the inner holy of holies has been torn and you Gentiles can even go there. What's in there? The presence of God himself. You are that temple. And his spirit has been poured out to us. 
So we not only have access into the temple and into the sanctuary, but into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. We have access to God. And so let's talk about our high calling then in our, our ministry and apply some of this in just a few of the ways. I hope you don't already have something to take home. This full access that we have to God to enter the most holy place with confidence, as the author of Hebrews tells us, that we, can, that we can come in with confidence to find help in our time of need into the very presence of God. All of this is a picture of fellowship with God. It's a, it's a picture, a metaphor for the possibility of a relationship with this holy God who once stood far off and has now brought us near. The possibility of relationship. The possibility of worship. The possibility to come close to Him then in prayer is to really, it's when, when, when we're led from up front and says, you know, come with me, you know, pray with me, that we can turn our hearts. And where do we go? And if you're paying attention and you're engaging and not tuning out, you know, it's a time to think about what you're having for lunch. But if you pray with the person who's praying, where do we go? If not into the very holy of holies, into the presence of God, in a moment we can turn our hearts and go to Him. We gather on a Sunday morning. We gather into His presence. There is a privilege and a calling to draw near in worship and to turn our hearts to Him in prayer and to come to to take advantage of that which we take for granted. It's to be in worship, to be in His presence in prayer, to seek Him in His Word, that He invites us to something unbelievable in spirit and in truth. And this amazing access is something we have only through Christ, something we always have to have fixed in our head. In verse 5, he goes on to say, as he says, that you are all these things, living stones, built into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood. You offer spiritual sacrifices. All of this, he says, is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father like this, except through me. Right? He is the way, and He is the truth, and all of our approach to God is to come to the Father through the Son, and what He has done, shedding His blood on a cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and accepted in the Beloved, and joined like a living stone to that living stone, the cornerstone, That we become a house for His presence. Because of Him. Only by Him. Another thing we need to see and to take away is the danger of imitating the builders. Because the builders rejected the stone. The danger of rejecting the cornerstone, of hardening our hearts in unbelief against Christ. In Luke 20, it's there in your bulletin under the last point, Jesus warned them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that's Christ. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And whenever it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Right? Jesus says that this stone is not a neutral, he's not a neutral stone. Right? He goes on to say he's a stone of stumbling and he is a rock of offense. There are many who are offended at Jesus, offended at his claims, right? Offended at his exclusivity, offended at his commands and his demands, offended that of, the, of who Jesus thinks he is, that he should call us unless you repent. 
this stone can crush. The rock of offense. Either we are broken, I believe on top one, you know, when anyone falls on it, it's broken. And I believe that brokenness is a brokenness that leads us to our knees, to surrender, to faith. Anyone who hits the rock is broken. You're either broken on top or crushed underneath. And to be broken on top is to be brought to faith, is humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit who are, know themselves to be spiritually bankrupt, who are driven to their knees before this one. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we are broken of our pride, of our self-centeredness. We are broken of our self-worship, of our ignorance and ignoring of God. And we are brought to the place of surrender to Christ. If He is who He said He is, then it breaks us in repentance to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and to follow Jesus Christ. It either breaks us or it crushes us in judgment. Pride and unbelief. Clowney says there in your bulletin, those who stumble at the word of the gospel are broken in their unbelief and ultimately we are crushed. So he calls us to faith. Right in verse 6, he calls us to faith. Verse 7, whoever believes, whoever responds in faith, he says, is never put to shame. That is God's promise throughout the Old Testament and the New. Those who come to Him in trust and in faith are never put to shame. And the honor, He says, is for you who believe. The preciousness, the belonging to Him. We are honored in being joined to Christ. So last couple things then, this corporate worship, as we come to Him in faith, we do not harden our hearts in unbelief. And we take full advantage of the access that he has given us. Corporate worship, I believe this puts corporate worship, it puts what we're doing here this morning at the center of everything. This whole image of us as a temple being built together. You know, as I was driving down Thrasher Pike to come to church this morning, I passed a dozen trucks pulling boats going the other direction. Right? There's more than one place you could be this morning. And this is the first beautiful day. You are here. And I believe that is the right choice. I believe it is the right thing. You are the temple. You are living stones. And when you are joined to the one next to you, right, you are being built up, he says, into a spiritual house. And his presence is here with us in a way that he is not some, at other times. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. That is not a statement to make you think, you know, when you're alone, I'm not with you. That's not, you know, we all know. He makes the promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is always with us, even when we are alone. But when two or three are gathered, in other words, when, when Christians come together, you know the word church actually means, it's, it's just the Greek word ecclesia, which means literally gathered. And so the, the church, I, I, it's one of those words, I don't know why we even use it. The Greek word underneath it is the gathered. So he writes to the gathered ones in Philippi, to the gathered ones here, to the gathered ones there, the gathering. The church is a gathering. That is what it is. It's living stones put together, making a spiritual house where worship takes place. And worship then is at the very center of our purpose and our being. And so what we do this morning is central. But I also say this, unless you say, okay, well, I go to church and you know, check it off my list and I've you know, done... I'm going to talk about it here in a second, that that worship goes far beyond this morning. It is, certainly, but, but you and your life as, as the temple become the center and the locus of God's presence. 
So we offer spiritual sacrifices. Let me say this. One more thing on that whole image of us as stones together as a church is unity. All these pictures that the New Testament paints are beautiful pictures of unity. Whether you're a body and we've got hands and feet and eyes and ears and they all work together to make one body. And when there's separation, it's painful and it's unhealthy. And he paints this picture of a body and he says, the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And the hand can't say to the ear, I don't need you. We need each other. And those that are of the, the least honor need the ones of honor and we all need each other. And he says, it all works. And he says, as we're built together as living stones, connected to the cornerstone, it's one building. There is a unity by his spirit that he gives to his church that he calls us to protect. So here in your bolt in Ephesians 4, 1 to 4, Paul writes and he says, I urge you, my friends, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with humility toward each other, with gentleness toward each other, with patience toward each other, bearing with one another in love. Why does Paul tell the church to bear with one another? That's just something to bear with. Put up with each other. Put up with your differences. Put up with your faults and your foibles. You know, you're a work in progress. I know you're the church. It's one of those things you've got to get over the shock of. You go to church and you think it's supposed to be. The, the danger is actually that you think it's a place where people have it all together or they act like they have it all together because we know that we do not have it all together. It's a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And so we gather and we know there's imperfection here. But he keeps calling us to a worthy living, this humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other, just as Peter had said a minute ago in chapter 2, verse 1, put away your malice and your deceit and your hypocrisy, your envy, your slander, and protect the unity, Ephesians 4. Why do all this? Bear with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit. It's the way it's supposed to be, and God says, protect it. And you're not walking worthy if you're not protecting it. And so the church in Christ is one. And we offer spiritual sacrifices. And I'll close with this idea. Spiritual sacrifices, it's a central idea. Right? It kind of moves toward this, doesn't it? We're li- He's a living stone, and so you're a living stone. And we're being built as a spiritual house, holy priesthood. All the way up to we're offering spiritual sacrifices. That are holy and acceptable to God. It's central to, to this whole thing. What sacrifice I said, no more bulls and goats, right? No more blood. Praise God. Thank God. That would be just, anyway. Don't want to go there. So where do we go? Romans 12.1. Every sacrifice was either poured out or burned up. That's what I said. It was consumed by God. Right? It belonged utterly to him. If, you, if it was wine or oil, it was completely poured out. Not yours anymore. Gave it to God, in that sense, consumed. If it was a sacrifice, it was to be burned. It was burned and it was consumed by God. Meaning it was His and His only. Belonged to Him. And so by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1, to present your bodies, that is, that your whole self. Present your whole self as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Remember, Jesus said that on that day, the Father's looking for such worshipers to worship Him, those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And Paul picks it up and says, here is your spiritual worship, that spirit and in truth, here's your spiritual worship. Offer your whole self to God. 
And let him, in that sense, consume you for himself. Paul says at the end of his ministry, I'm being poured out like a sacrifice on the sacrifice and service in the life of the church. Right? And he says, and that's for us, we're living sacrifices to be poured out on behalf of service to Christ and his kingdom. Living sacrifices. No more, but living and in some ways that's harder because it's 24-7, 365 to the day. He takes us home. We offer ourselves to Him. We are the temple. We are priests unto God together, unified by the cornerstone, right? And brought into the place of His presence and of sacrificial service, of a living sacrifice that isn't an hour on Sunday morning, but this is where we live. That's why those came yesterday morning and served choices. That's why those who come in early and prepare and lead us in worship, why those who are preparing during the week to teach Sunday school or those who step into the leadership and the, and the offer, we're trying to you know, come after some of you to be officers in the life of the church and to serve. And a lot of it has to do that my life has been given over, surrendered onto the altar to be consumed by God as a living sacrifice. Would you take some time this week? And present or represent yourself to him. Right? That's what Paul says. Present yourself, your whole self, as a living sacrifice. Would you take some time this week to do that? Or do it again? I got to do it every day. I don't know about you. I get up every morning. Like, God have mercy. Help me to walk with you. Right? To, to know you and to love you and to serve you and to honor you. Help me to be that man. You should do it every day, but will you take some time this week and offer yourself, give your life to be consumed by God, a life of surrender and of worship and of service, which means sacrifice. It means Saturday mornings and weeknights. It means, it means your stuff, your time, your money. It means your heart, your soul. It means to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That is everything you got. Living for Him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to your presence because your word is living and true, and here we long for you to speak. Father, I thank you for these who have gathered. Father, I pray that we didn't just gather information, but we invite your presence. Come, indwell your church. Come, manifest your glory in our midst. Come, and may your kingdom come and your will be done in each heart and in each life that sits in your presence this morning. Have your way with us. Consume us. we might serve you and bring glory and honor to the name of our great God and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.